0: Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. The year was 1054. For centuries, tensions had been brewing in the various hubs of the Catholic Church, particularly between Rome and Constantinople. Rome was the ancient epicenter of Christianity, the place where Peter and Paul last ministered before their martyrdom. However, in 330, the Emperor Constantine, who legalized Christianity, made Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. This further diverged the Latin-speaking West and the Greek-speaking East. Over the course of the centuries, there were a number of theological disputes that had remained unsettled, and those theological disputes were only exacerbated by political tension. Mind you, there was no separation of church and state, and so to further the purposes of the state, Catholics often battled against other Catholics in the name of political gain. In 1054, Pope Leo IX sent an emissary, Cardinal Humbert, along with two others from Rome to Constantinople, to smooth things over with Michael Cerularius, the Patriarch of Constantinople. On the morning of July 16th, 1054, Cardinal Humbert and the two other emissaries entered the Hagia Sophia, the mother church of Constantinople. Interrupting the divine liturgy, they marched into the sanctuary, and on the altar they laid a formal decree excommunicating the patriarch of Constantinople. They then walked straight out of the church, stopping to symbolically shake the dust off their shoes. A deacon grabbed the document and chased down the papal emissaries, begging them not to do this, but it was no use. The Patriarch of Constantinople and the Eastern Churches had been excommunicated from the Catholic Church of Rome. In turn, the Patriarch Cellularius excommunicated Pope Leo IX and the Western Catholic Churches. While there had been smaller schisms over the years, no schism had ever risen to this level. The Western Churches led by the Pope in Rome separated from the Eastern Churches led by the Patriarch of Constantinople. This event is known as the Great Schism. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been in a series on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We took a few episodes to talk about the unity of the Catholic church. In the last episode, we started looking at the diversity of the Catholic church. The Catholic church is not a monolith. It's made up of some 1.3 billion people from all over the world, which is why its unity is remarkable. Today, I want to look at another facet of the unity and diversity of the Catholic Church by looking at the 24 particular churches that make up the Catholic Church. By the way, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about in Catholicism. I've always been a bit of a church polity nerd. You know, I often hear Protestants call Catholics Roman Catholic. I think sometimes it's used derogatorily in order to undermine the Catholic Church's legitimacy. They refuse to acknowledge that today's Catholic Church is the universal church of antiquity, so they call it the Roman Catholic Church. I think, however, most do it out of ignorance because that's how they've heard it. Besides, the headquarters of the Catholic Church and the earthly leader of the church, aka the Pope, are in Rome. Therefore, it seems legitimate to call it the Roman Catholic Church. However, what you're going to learn today is that calling the Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church is a bit of a misnomer because not all Catholics are Roman Catholic, even though all Catholics are in communion with the Pope in Rome. To begin, we have to take a look at a little history. During the 6th century, the emperor Justinian proposed the idea of five patriarchates. These would be hubs of the church with a leader over each hub. Rome and the Pope were obviously one. Constantinople, which was set up as the capital of the Byzantine Empire, was another. And added to those were Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. This was later confirmed at the Council of Trullo in 692. However, after the Muslim invasions of Egypt and Syria in 638-640, through 640, only the bishops of Rome and Constantinople had any real power. Even though there were five patriarchs, the bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the pope, was considered the vicar of Christ, the one who succeeded St. Peter as the earthly leader of the church. However, there was also an understanding that Pope was primus inter paris, or the first among equals. Part of the debates leading up to the Great Schism had to do with how much authority the Pope had. Could the Pope make binding rulings for the whole Catholic Church, or did he need the other patriarchs to sign off on them? There was a lot of disagreement between the West and the East with how much authority the Pope truly had. Of course, this was complicated by the Church's deeply intertwined state politics. When the Great Schism occurred, it was before the time of the 24-7 news channels, the internet, email, phone, and even the printing press. So imagine being way out in Eastern Europe or the Middle East and one day learning that you're no longer part of the Catholic Church, but you're now called Eastern Orthodox. As you might imagine, this came as a surprise and a shock to many Eastern churches. Some didn't know they were excommunicated from the Catholic Church until decades after the Great Schism. The divide between the East and the West eventually led to horrific bloodshed. For example, in 1182, a man by the name of Antronicus I, Komnenos, with public support, overthrew the emperor in Constantinople and established himself as the Byzantine emperor. At the time, there was a large Latin population in Constantinople, estimated around 60,000. In an event known as the Latin Massacre, Andronicus I executed many Latins and forced the surviving Latin population to flee. In 1204, Catholic crusaders loyal to the Pope sacked the city of Constantinople and divided the Byzantine Empire amongst themselves. This led to both the churches in the West and the churches in the East, claiming that the other side was neither truly Catholic nor Orthodox. In following years, there were a number of efforts to restore the unity of the Church. For example, in 1274, the Western Church, headquartered in Rome, held the Second Ecumenical Council of Lyons with the aim of ending disputes with the Eastern Church, headquartered in Constantinople. Another aspect we need to talk about is the governance structure between the East and the West. The Western churches had more of a centralized governance under the Pope, whereas the Eastern churches tended to be a little bit more libertarian with a decentralized type of governance. Think of it like the difference between a country that has a monarchy versus a country that has a state or provincial system of government. This can be seen with the liturgy as well. The Western churches uniformly incorporated the Latin Mass. However, depending on where you were in the East, you might celebrate Mass in Greek, Coptic, Aramaic, Syriac, etc., with each having some variations of the Mass, or they called it the Divine Liturgy. I mentioned earlier that it took a long time for news to spread of the Great Schism, and so there were some Eastern churches surprised to discover that they were no longer in communion with the Catholic Church in Rome. Many Eastern churches wanted to rectify that, so in 1438, Eastern churches convened the Council of Florence to try and understand and rectify the theological differences between the Western and Eastern churches. This resulted in several Eastern churches associating themselves with Rome, which formed the Eastern Catholic churches. The Vatican accepted these churches without requiring them to adopt the customs of the Latin church and referred to these Eastern churches as sui iuris, which means of one's own right. Right. These churches were, for the most part, given autonomy in their governance and liturgy, but they were no longer a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but rather entered into full communion with the Catholic Church and are indeed called Catholic. Over the years, more and more of the Eastern Churches have come into full communion with the Catholic Church. In total, there are now 24 Autonomous Churches, or Sui iuris that fall within six different Catholic Rites, Those six rites are the Latin rite, the Alexandrian rite, the Armenian rite, the East Syrian or Chaldean rite, and the Constantinopolitan or Byzantine rite. So, for example, the Latin Rite contains one particular church, and that is the Latin or Roman Catholic Church. This particular church is the largest with over 1 billion people. There's only about 17 million people that make up the other 23 particular Catholic churches. So most Catholics are indeed Roman Catholics, but not all Catholics are Roman Catholic. And this is why people shouldn't call Catholics Roman Catholics or refer to the Catholic Church as the Roman Catholic Church, because in doing so, they're excluding 17 million people who are also fully Catholic. So what are these other churches called? Here are some examples. The Byzantine Catholic Church, the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, the Russian Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Maronite Catholic Church, the Armenian Catholic Church, just to name a few. I have some awesome resources in the show notes that go into detail on each of these different rites and churches. I would highly recommend the resource from Ascension, where you can actually click into each rite to learn more. Now, this is where it's going to get really tricky. Each of these churches have their own governance, though they all recognize the supremacy of the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church is divided into dioceses. However, each of these other churches also have their own regions, often called eparchies. As communities immigrated to places like the United States and Canada, they often started these Eastern churches in their communities. It's similar to the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you've seen the romantic comedy My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you'll recall that the main characters were Greek immigrants to Chicago who were active in their Greek Orthodox Church. Let's take a look at New York City, for example. There's lots of Roman Catholic churches throughout the city, and those fall under the authority of the Archdiocese of New York, which is led by the Archbishop of New York. However, you'll also find St. Mary's Byzantine Catholic Church in Lower Manhattan, and that's part of the Eparchy of Pasek. In Brooklyn, you'll find St. Nicholas Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is part of the Archieparchy, that's a fun word – of Philadelphia. Not too far from there is the Resurrection Coptic Catholic Church, which is part of the Coptic Catholic Churches, but is actually under the care of the Archbishop of New York in the Latin Rite. Recently, I attended a Maronite Catholic Church in Southern California, which is under the Eparchy of Our Lady of Lebanon of Los Angeles. It's probably a little confusing, but what this means is that even though we're most familiar with dioceses and Catholic churches that fall in the Roman or Latin Rite, There may be a Catholic Church that's fully Catholic but practices the Mass a little differently. In fact, Eastern churches refer to the Mass as divine liturgy, and in some cases fall under a different jurisdiction than the diocese and the bishop of the diocese. Speaking of the Maronite Church, the Maronites come from Syria and consider themselves as always being in communion with the Catholic Church. In other words, they'll say they didn't take part in the Great Schism. It was really interesting seeing some of the cultural differences in that Maronite church. For example, one of the things they talked about was a national gathering of Maronite Catholics, so it's important to remember that they are both Catholic and have a strong connection with their particular Maronite rite. I personally loved seeing some of the differences in the way they celebrate the Maronite Divine Liturgy versus the Roman Catholic Mass. For one, there was lots of music, and their worship service was a mixture of Arabic, Aramaic, and English. It was really lovely. The Catholic Church fully acknowledges that these Eastern Churches both in the Catholic and Orthodox communion practice a rich liturgy that goes much further back than the Latin Mass. Therefore, it's important for these churches to maintain these rich liturgies instead of adopting the Roman or Latin rite. So, how do you know that you're actually attending a Catholic church in the communion of Catholic churches? Because it can be a little confusing, especially when you consider that there's a Coptic Catholic Church and a Coptic Orthodox Church. There's the Russian Catholic Church, not to be confused with the Russian Orthodox Church. There's the Byzantine Catholic Church as well as the Byzantine Orthodox Church. You get the gist. Well, the first way to tell is the name. Orthodox churches won't have the name Catholic in them, though they claim to be Catholic, whereas Catholic churches will use Catholic in their name. However, to make matters more confusing, there are some churches, albeit few and far between, that use the term Catholic but are not actually a part of the Catholic Church. So how can you tell if the church is Catholic or not? Well, one thing I often do is look up information on the website. However, the dead giveaway as to whether a church is Catholic, as in part of the communion of Catholic churches, occurs during the prayers before communion. Priests will say something to the effect of, together with our Pope Francis, and then the name of their bishop or Eparch. By doing that, they are affirming that the Pope is the earthly leader of the church. In the next episode, we're going to talk about why the authority of the Pope is so important. I also want to note that popes for a while now have made it clear that ecumenicism is the way and the future of the Catholic Church. In other words, there have been great efforts, especially over the last hundred years, to rebuild these broken bridges that have been caused by schisms over the centuries. For example, Pope Francis has made a number of efforts with the Eastern Orthodox Church to rebuild communion, and I'm hopeful that in my generation we may see even more Eastern churches come into communion with the Catholic Church, if not the end of the Great Schism itself. The Catholic Church has also established the Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter. This provides an avenue for Anglican and Episcopalian churches who want to come into full communion with the Catholic Church while maintaining much of their liturgical rites. They even have their own separate diocese. Depending on who you ask, this diversity is also a little messy. There are many Catholics that have no idea about the Eastern Catholic Churches, which of course must make them feel left out. There is always more that we can do to build unity. However, the Eastern Catholic Churches is one of the reasons why I am Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox. One of my considerations for a church community was unity, and after taking a hard look, the Catholic Church was the only church moving seriously towards unity without sacrificing orthodoxy. I talked about this in episode 35 if you'd like to hear a lengthier explanation. I hope these past two episodes show you that the Catholic Church is not a monolith. It is a really diverse and big tent. So many ethnicities, languages, orders, ministries, and even liturgical rites. Why not? In a diverse world created by God, the church of all places should reflect that diversity while also emulating the unity of our triune creator. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at Podcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.